Prepare yourself. Okay, let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, from the studios in the wrestling capital of the South, it's another terrific episode of The Binge Buster Show. Please welcome your host, Tony Binge. All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Binge Buster Show. I am super excited about this week's show. Um, for the first time in Binge Buster Show history, The Binge Buster Show is not going to have not one, not two, but three hosts uh, on this show. I'm I'm really excited. I'm bringing in uh, two guys that have been on the podcast more than anybody. Um, I, I don't know which one of these guys has been on the most. I mean, I think it's neck and neck, but they both have a lot of knowledge about pro wrestling, about the history of pro wrestling. So I thought, who better to get than get both of these guys and compound all of our knowledge into this one show um, so I'm really excited about that. So um, on this week's show, I'm, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about the um, Great American Bash in uh, 1988. And, and in 1988, they, Jim Crockett Promotions done their first um, uh, Great American Bash pay-per-view. Even though the Great American Bash was still a tour, um, they, they picked one uh, city, and I think it was Baltimore, to do the pay-per-view. But I was actually at the one in Greensboro on July the 16th, 1988. And uh, so Chris and uh, Jeff and I are going to be sitting down talking about this. So uh, before we any further ado, I just want to go ahead and, and get the music rolling and get my co-host out here so we can get this show on the road. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome my co-host this week. I'm talking about Jeff Patton and Chris Plano. Guys, how are you? Doing great. How about you, Tony? Doing good. Chris, you, are you on the line? Tony, so great to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, Jeff, look forward to working with you this week. And I'm so excited. We're going to zap it back to 1988 and the Great American Bash on tour. What, what a great time for professional wrestling. I'm telling you guys, it was a it was a great uh, uh, you know I, I always loved the Great American Bash tour because it was more less like a it's almost like a summer rock concert uh, to to a degree because not only did you get to see uh, pro wrestling but you know during the um, the 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 beginnings of the Great American Bash '85 and '86 they would book you know country artists. Um, to come and perform, and so the, the the singers would would sing first, and then they'd bring in the wrestling. And I, I thought it was just a great a way to to for family entertainment because you're not only get, getting to see you know, the best wrestling in the Carolinas and the Mid Atlantic Territory, but a lot of times they had some major country artists um, on those on those bills. I mean, they had like Willie Nelson and uh, David Allen Coe, and so it was a good time. So I thought you know this week. Um, you know, that we'd all sit down and, and put our put our brains together and, and, and talk about this Great American Bash. Um, and one stop in particular uh, I'm talking about is going to be at the Greensboro Coliseum. So uh, let's, let's get into this right here. Ready, go! So the Great American Bash was a, uh, a several – it went on through the whole summer – um, every summer from like 1985 to 1988, 
was the Great American Bash on tour. And guys, like like what's what's some of y'all's memories of of the Great American Bash shows? Well, Tony, unfortunately, I never was able to make any of the shows. I never was there in in person, but uh, did see you know highlights, and uh, of course, they did uh, televise some back in the day. Um, but it was. It just seemed like it, there was an electricity in the air that there wasn't at other shows, uh, just because um, just the summer, man. I mean, the summer, you know, school's out, kids are out of school, uh, you know, people are taking vacations, and uh, uh, it just made for, and the, it seemed like they built the feuds up for the summer as well, and that's what made it even more special. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Chris, did uh, you ever have yeah. the opportunity to uh, to attend any Great American Bashes? You know, Tony, just like Jeff, I never had the opportunity to attend a Great American Bash on tour in any of their years. And I used to watch it at 6.05 every Saturday night on WTBS up in Connecticut. That was our only access to NWA wrestling back then. And I would beg my father, please take me to Philadelphia when they come. The great American bash is coming. He never took me. And all I remember from, you would see the guy, you know, parachuting out of the plane with the big American flag in his back. And the great American bash was on tour. And it was great because back then you had the war games. You had Ric Flair defending the title every night possibly. And, and I think titles could have changed any night on any given city and any different date. And, that was really what drew me into the Great American Bash was who's going to come out at the end of the bashes as the champions because I think at any given night, any city, the, the, the titles were up for grabs. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, this this Great American Bash that we're going to be talking about tonight, I actually got to go um, through my years of uh, Great American Bashes. I was actually able to go to um, – I was I, I didn't I didn't go to the very first one, 1985, because the Great American Bash '85 they it wasn't a tour they only had one, um, and they had that at the Charlotte Memorial Stadium, uh, and the main event on that one was Dusty Rhodes against Tully Blanchard in the cage, and that's that's where Dusty not only won the television title but he won the services of Baby Doll for 30 days, and then that took off to a whole a whole new angle. Um, you know, between the two, and of course, we, you know, we've we've saw we've talked about this in the past a little bit. Matter of fact, when I even even when I had Baby Doll on my podcast, she touched base on it a little bit about how they were, you know, down at Nelson Royals um, uh, Ranch right here in Mooresville where I live, and uh, which I thought was kind of neat. But but the bashes were, you know, like like you said, Jeff and and Chris, it was a way to really take those angles and really blow them up um, because back in the eighties. Unlike now, you know, you got pay-per-views every month. But back then, you had two big pay-per-views a year. You had the Great American Bash in the summer, and you had Starcade uh, on Thanksgiving. So that that was like the the, the you know the two big draws. But uh, on this particular Great American Bash um, uh, that, I got, that I went to, it, they had it in Greensboro. Now in 1988, they were doing renovations on the Greensboro Coliseum, so they actually um, moved this show from the actual Coliseum and had it in the war memorial, um, part of the, of the Coliseum. Uh, and Chris, I know, I know you, you, you know, you're, you're very familiar with it, with the war, with the war memorial, cause it's right next door to the Greensboro Coliseum, but they own, they, th- this show drew 7,500 people. Um, you know, like the 1988 Crockett promotions were, were, you know, they were, they were, they were in the process of going through some changes. 
Uh, and and Chris, uh, you and I talked about this before we went on air. Just a few few months after this Great American Bash, the NWA was actually sold to uh, Ted Turner. Um, but I remember, you know, the years the bashes before I, I'd go to ticket prices. You know, they were they were now this is the '80s, so ticket prices wasn't crazy, but you know they wasn't cheap. But I remember going to this show. And the you know the, the big selling thing was all seats in the upper balcony of the Coliseum was only five bucks, so you got to go see a major show for five dollars. I mean, I thought that was a heck of a savings there, you know, in nineteen eighty eight. That was a steal for nineteen eighty eight prices for the level of talent that was on that show from opening match to main event. And I've been in the War Memorial part of the Greensboro Coliseum, as you know, Tony. I've seen several concerts there in the past, in the late 90s and early 2000s, and 7,500 people in that part of the complex of the Greensboro Coliseum, that place was that place was packed out. They probably really needed the major arena. It could have probably have sold a whole lot more beyond the 7,500 with the level of talent and storylines going on that summer. Yeah, and, and, and one of the things um, that I, I remember about the Great American Bash was it's when I started noticing that a lot of UWF guys was actually on this card. Um, now, now we'll start off, uh, and, and uh, I'll, I'll get you guys' opinion, but the opening match uh, was a really crazy pairing. Like, uh, Jeff, when I tell you this, it's going to blow your mind, I know. Um, so on one side of the ring, you had Bugsy McGraw, teaming with Tim Horner, and they were uh, in a match against Larry Zabisco and Rip Morgan. Yeah, that's kind of odd. Uh, and Bugsy McGraw, I mean, I hate to steal Bobby Heenan's old uh, saying, but he's definitely proof that the Three Stooges did have kids. Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, uh, Bugsy McGraw was out there. That's all I can say. Yeah, uh, yeah he's he was nutty or sweet cake, but uh, uh, yeah, him and Tim Horner, that's uh, definitely two clashing styles. Uh, Muggsy was a brawling type wrestler, and uh, uh, Tim Horner was, was more of a, uh, uh, he could high fly, but he was more of a mat wrestler, and Rick Morgan was another wild and crazy one, and uh, you said Larry Zabisco, who was a scientific wrestler and veteran, so yeah, that's definitely an odd foursome together in the ring. Now, now this match went eight minutes and nine seconds with uh, Bugsy McGraw and Tim Horner uh, winning that match. But uh, Chris, <laughs> what 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 do you think about this pairing? Boy, it's just kind of a, a a mixed bag overall. I mean, for me being up north, I mean, going back, I'm a 17 year old kid. You know, looking, you know, in, in, in 1988, you know, Tim Horner, you know on the WTBS angle, was actually promoted by the NWA. So I knew who Tim Horner was. Obviously knew Larry Zabisco from the, from the old days. But knowledge-wise, myself as a wrestling fan, I didn't have much, much exposure to Rip Morgan or Bugsy McGraw, really, leading into this match. And really, I mean, it's an opening match. It's a ta- and it's kind of rare. A tag team match being an opening match, it's, it's kind of rare for any kind of wrestling show in particular, but I guess maybe they were trying to just get fans into the seats maybe the first 8, 10, 12 minutes that were late getting to the show, but it's definitely a, um, a, a mixed bag overall. Um, but really, you think about Larry Zabisco, the knowledge that he had at that time, 
definitely exceeded the three other wrestlers in the ring. Yeah, because I, 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 I think that 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 uh, that that when when this show took place, it it was not not too long after this, Sabisco would leave the NWA and go back to the AWA and become the AWA World Heavyweight Champion. Um, and then that's that's when he kind of started his gimmick, Larry Land. And, uh, you know, I thought that was, that was a really cool gimmick for him. Um, now the next match is, is I remember, I, you know, being there, I remember, um, you know, seeing, seeing him walk out and hearing the reaction from the fans. And I was like, as a kid, I, you know, I was like 15, I think I was 14, 15 years old, but I remember hearing the reaction from the crowd when this guy walked out, it was like, oh my gosh. And for him to be on the second match, uh, especially after getting this heat that he got, uh, it blew my mind. But, uh, so the second match on this card was Ron Garvin with his new manager, Gary Hart. Um, and he, um, was, and he went against the Italian stallion. Of course, this match went one minute, 15 seconds, but just a week before this show, um, prior to this show, they, they had the great American bash in Baltimore pay-per-view. Um, and one of them, and one of the, major matches on that card was for the United States championship, Dusty Rose against, um, Barry Windham. And, uh, you know, if you guys can remember this match, who would have thought that Ron Garvin would have came out and turned on Dusty Rose? I mean, they were the risky business boys, you know, they, you know, they, they had bonds and Ron came out there and uh, knocked Dusty out. And I, man, the, 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 I remember watching it on television when it happened it, and when, when he hit Dusty, the place went crazy. I mean, it really did. Yeah, and, uh, it was a shock to me as a kid and, uh, uh, I wasn't expecting it. I mean, Ron Garvin was always, you know, big baby face and, you know, it seemed like, uh, yeah, a year ago, he was the uh, NWA world champion. So, uh, defeated Ric Flair. So, yeah, it's kind of uh, odd uh, and, and just a big shock when he did that to Dusty. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to just, you know, go off of what Jeff said. Every, I've always known Ronnie Garvin as that quiet-type wrestler in the ring with the, you know, the white towel around his neck and always ready to ready to go when needed. And, and, and with Gary Hart, I remember Gary from the, obviously the world class championship wrestling days and stuff. And I'm sure for the people in the mid Atlantic in the South, it, it was a shock, um, you know, for them, but, but for, for Garvin, you know, maybe trying to take a different turn with his career as well. So, you know, who knows, but, you know, but always, you know, Ronnie, you know, well-respected in the ring and, and, and was always, a, you know, a consummate, you know, competitor as well. Yeah, but – and if, and if yeah. my memory serves me right, just just a few a few short months later, Ron Garvin would go on to, you know, move to the WWF. Uh, right after, it seemed like right after the sale uh, of Crockett Promotions to uh, World Championship Wrestling. Yeah. And, Tony, yeah, by the way, uh, I saw a shoot interview with Ronnie Garvin and he wasn't happy about that whole deal. Oh, he wasn't. He didn't want to do it. No, yeah. he was not happy. Yeah. He said it didn't make sense. He said, he, I was popular. I was getting over, and Dusty wanted me to go heal. He said it didn't make sense. Yeah. It, it really didn't. I mean, if you look at Ronnie and his the decor in the ring and his colors that he wore and just his whole image, it, it just didn't. I don't know if it really fit, and I don't know if he really had the personality long term 
to be a heel, you know, that would get over with the fans. I mean, that's just my opinion, but it just didn't seem like the way they built him up over the years to do that drastic turn that he would have been the right guy. Yeah. You know, I, I, I looking back, you know, just, just a few, a few uh, months or so prior or, or actually a year before that, uh, when the midnight express came out and Jim Cornette burned, uh, you know, through the big fireball in Ronnie Garvin's face right there in the Charlotte Coliseum. And then at the time, Jimmy Garvin, gorgeous Jimmy Garvin, was was a heel. And, you know, he he was like one of the first ones to run to the ring. Um, and then they put them together as a tag team, the Garvin brothers, and they had a little feud with the Midnight Express. Um, one of the things that, that I didn't particularly like about the, the, the heel turn is when once Ronnie Garvin turned heel, they just pretty much separated him and Jimmy Garvin and, and almost like didn't even acknowledge that, that they had been brothers, tag team partners, anything like that. Just kind of like erased it and like, you know, forgot about it. Um, I know in reality, and I know sometimes maybe I put too much thought in, in the angles, but I would think, okay, Ronnie just turned heel, man. Jimmy Garvin should have been the first one to come out there. And, but from a Booker standpoint, maybe that was their idea. Like, okay, the brother's, One's baby face, one's heel. We'll just keep them separated again, you know, that kind of deal. But in reality, some of you fans may not know this, but um, actuality, uh, they, 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 they actually wasn't brothers in real life. Uh, 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 Ron Garvin was actually Jimmy Garvin's stepdad. Was that was that the deal? You guys know, yeah. know the story? Yeah. Yeah, and, and two, uh, I was there at the Charlotte Coliseum the night that happened, by the way. Oh, nice, Jeff. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. That was like a big, a big thing. And and talk. I mean, over the years, we've uh, seen a lot of guys throw fireballs, even yours truly. But um, I've never seen a fireball as big and massive as the one that Jim Cornette threw at Ronnie Garvin there on that on that particular night. Yeah, it was amazing. All right, so so going on to the next match. Uh, another singles match, another quick match. Now, one of the things, guys, uh, like the first four matches on this Bass show were almost like television tape and squash matches. Um, the next match was Dick Murdoch, Captain Redneck, and everybody knows what kind of crazy dude Dick Murdoch was. Um, he he goes he goes against uh, former NWA World Junior Champion Gary Royal. Uh, their match would go seven minutes two seconds. With of course Dick Murdoch um, winning that one, but. Um, what what do, what do you guys think think about um, Dick Murdoch? Yeah, and he was uh, he was healed in at the time, correct? Yeah, he yeah he was the heel at that point. Uh, okay. Yep. Yeah. Um, I thought he was a better heel. To be honest with you, um, just because I mean he had a mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, he definitely knew how to. Yeah, he knew how to get heat from fans. So yeah. Yeah. Now, now, as a kid growing up, I I never knew about you know that Dusty and and uh, Dick Murdoch were like you know the Texas Outlaws bad tag team. Now, Chris, what I'm about to say, I'm sure that that you can relate to being as you know you were you know up up north during this time. But the very first time that I ever got to see Dick Murdoch uh, was when he was teaming with uh, Adrian Adonis in the WWF. Yes. Yeah. yeah, and. You know, and, and they were actually a very successful tag team in the WWF. Two different clashing styles with adorable Adrian Adonis and what was back then Dirty Dick Murdoch. Yeah. Um, I'm actually surprised this match even went seven minutes. To be honest, nothing against Gary Royal, but 
I, you know, with Dirty Dick Murdoch coming in as, you know, you, you know, the heel, you know, Gary Royal, you know, junior champion, you know, I, I will look at it, but they may have been trying to stress the show out a little bit at that point because the next match went really, really short. But, you know, overall, I mean, Dick Murdoch, very capable wrestler in the ring, uh, very skilled wrestler. Um, you know, he, he just bounced from territory to territory, but, you know, had some decent respect in the WWF, too, back in the day. Yeah, I, I'll tell you guys something, if, if and, and, and some of you fans out there, too, but, but especially Chris and Jeff, if you guys want to see something funny, um, I found this um, this interview from uh, from uh, Superstation TBS there in the studios in Atlanta. Uh, this this was right after uh, Dick Murdoch had turned heel and, teamed, and started teaming with uh, Ivan Koloff. So he's out there cutting a promo, and I guess – some of the marks out there and it being a small television studio, they were saying something that I guess was giving away, uh, some, some, some secrets that were, you know, that, 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 that I guess Dick Murdoch was and Ivan were supposed to, cause I think, I think at this time they, they wasn't the U S tag team champions, but they really were. But, but since it was television, they didn't bring the belts out. And maybe some fan said, you know, where's your, where's your U S strap or, or tag straps or whatever. And on the match uh, or on the interview, you, you you hear Dick you hear Dick Murdoch go shut up you bunch of kayfabers <laughs> it's the way he said it and he said it right there on national television and I said that is the coolest thing and I've even thought about getting a shirt made with Dick Murdoch's face on it and have it say shut up you bunch of kayfabers and <laughs> I can make some money off of that and like and like as soon as he said it you can see Tony Schiavone's face like. Like he he everything he could he could do to hold it back from cracking up. That's classic. Yeah, Dick <laughs> Dick was funny. I mean, he's, I mean, it's funny. he's a ship. You bunch of kayfabers. But uh, but now going you on, never know what's going to come out of one's mouth at any one time. No, no, and 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 Chris, when you say that, you know, that 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 like takes us to a whole different a whole different thing. You know, Jeff and I. Have uh, have known each other probably about as long um, as you and I have, Chris. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, Jeff and I, you know, Jeff Jeff ran a, a wrestling promotion, and and a lot of times uh, back in those days, Jeff and I would would pull double duty. Not only would would uh, we be the bookers, but and the wrestlers, but we we're also the commentators. And uh, a couple times, you know, talking about people saying stuff uh, uh, jeff used to have to fuss at me because i'd be out there commentating and i'd say stuff that was kind of a little you know, edgy then and jeff's like brother you can't say that because i gotta edit it out <laughs> remember that jeff <laughs> hey hey yeah. beyond double do you i think i think jeff would agree with me you're probably doing triple duty well <laughs> probably triple and three who knows you know, back in those days back in those days i was living my gimmick wasn't i jeff but um you you were you, you you both were uh, men that wore many hats. Yeah, but yeah. but but Chris, I I I I I'll tell you a funny inside story. So one day we're we're doing a little television taping up there, and uh, Jeff had this guy in the ring uh, working up there, and he was uh, the the guy was okay, he wasn't a great worker, but I mean he was okay. But he had right. went out and had and, and got these like Halloween costumes for his gimmick, and Jeff Jeff knows where I'm going with this, but he's out there. And he's he's dressed like um like the like one of the video game characters from uh, Mortal Kombat, right? And he's got this chick with him, 
And, you know, Jeff, me, Jeff, and Jeff's brother Tony are trying to commentate the match. Me, I'm checking out the chick because I'm like, Jeff, you know, who is she? I'm, you know, I'm, I'm asking questions, you know. And um, so, and, and he's got her dressed up like I Dream of Jeannie. You know, she got the little belly thing on and, you know, she, 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 was, she was a good looking girl, right? So I'm out there, you know, Jeff and his brother are doing the commentate and I'm, I'm pretty much doing Jerry Lawler before Jerry Lawler was doing Jerry Lawler. Um, and uh, every time he get knocked down, she would like make these hand gestures and then you know he'd, he'd fight back up. And there at the end, he gets knocked down and she takes one hand and like makes this motion like to get up. And I said, gorgeous Jeff, did you see that? And Jeff's like, what, what was that? Tony goes, I said, did you see that with one hand? She got him up. I said, with her around who needs Viagra? <laughs> Remember that Jeff? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> And Jeff's like, well, guess I got to edit that out. <laughs> but we used to have the, we used to have so much fun, you know, doing and 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 I love that part of of wrestling, is you know, where where you're, you know, you can just kind of live off of, you know, off the fly, you know, you 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 don't have to have like a script and all this stuff, you know, off the fly. And sometimes it's bad, but a lot of times, you know, most guys can be the most creative when it's when it's not thought about just it just roll and just you know just rolls right out you know hey bro that's what's ruined the wwe i mean it's you crazy play with you that is what has ruined the wwe yeah I, I miss those days where where the guys could just say what they wanted you know now now chris uh, uh get, yep. okay fans to, to, to give you guys a little inside scoop if you didn't know it but i'm sure you know you guys know this but uh back in the 90s uh, Chris Plano ran a very successful uh, wrestling company called New Dimension Wrestling, and Chris was bringing in some really top stars. Now, Chris, uh, did uh, you ever give give your wrestlers like tell them what to say, or you just pretty much let let let, let, let them do what what they felt? I mean, Tony, I kind of let them do what they wanted to do. I mean, back then in the mid-90s, late-90s, early-2000s, I kind of just let them do what they wanted to do unless we were doing a really specific storyline or angle with something. It was kind of just, you know, I don't want to use the word ablib per se, but they kind of knew what they needed to say and, and they got the point across and, and, and kept things going. So I was never really hard-pressed on anyone to, to say certain things unless it was absolutely necessary from a promotional standpoint or, you know, or it just had to be said. And I had a couple other people working for me behind the scenes as well that helped me too with that. But overall, it, 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 you know, sometimes the best interviews are when they are ablet and yeah. you're just kind of doing an impromptu and, and it, it, it turns out for the best instead of just trying to, say the right things right yeah um i I agree i think it's i think that's good um which kind of takes us on to um our next match um which was which was a cool match i enjoyed this one um this one was a uh was was kind of different uh so during this time there's a little feud going on between uh jimmy garvin uh and um games master kevin sullivan you know kevin's trying to, to to take precious um, so, and at this time, Rick Steiner was the Florida heavyweight champion. So on this match, it's Jimmy Garvin with precious versus Florida heavyweight champion, Rick Steiner 
the match starts out, um, you know, th- th- this match only lasts a minute, 25 seconds. But th- the reason for that was um, um, Kevin Sullivan ran out and tried to kidnap, uh, you know, Precious. Of course, Jimmy, you know, Jimmy gets there and gets him. But why Jimmy is chasing uh, Stein, uh, um, Kevin Sullivan, he actually gets counted out. So therefore, Steiner gets to keep the television championship, and and Jimmy Garvin, you know, gets counted out. And of course, it helps them build their feud um, for the rest of the summer, which actually ended up. Uh, I think that, that that feud pretty much ended when, if you guys remember, on Superstation TBS, uh, Kevin Sullivan and the Varsity Club come out. And they they attack Jimmy Garvin, and Kevin you know, th- throws the big cinder block on, on Jimmy's leg, shattering his knee. Uh, and after that, we didn't see Jimmy Garvin back in the NWA until you know, I, I think in '89 uh, when he came back as a member of the of the Fabulous Freebirds. Um, what do you guys remember the most, um, or if anything, uh, about this feud with um, with uh, Kevin Sullivan and uh, Jimmy Garvin? I just remember the Tower of Doom. Uh, I thought that was that was one that I remember. I thought that was a pretty cool deal. Um, but I remember, didn't Kevin kidnap Precious at one time? Yeah, he kidnapped her. Yeah, um, during during, the, during uh, 1988 when they had this little feud, they they done some really weird stuff uh, at the time that you know I look back and go, okay, it was creative. But at the time, I I didn't really get it. But they you know they did that where, they, where you know that's what started the feud was you know and and also Kevin would come out and call Precious by her real name Patty. Uh, not precious. Uh, so he, so he, so he put the, the the realism into that angle. But one of the weirdest matches during of that feud was the Prince of Darkness death match, where they had the the cloaks over their faces, and uh, and th- that match actually took place the very first uh, Clash of the Champions, which incidentally was right here in Greensboro. Um, so. Uh, a really weird feud, but but I'm I'm with you, Jeff. I, I think the coolest thing they had was that was that Tower of Doom. And uh, I, I know at that time they they were trying to get away from the war games and all the stuff they did. But um, but the the, the Tower of Doom was was definitely a, a cool concept. And Tony, you brought me a lot of clarification in this match because when I looked at it and I saw a minute twenty five, I was like, wow. Rick Steiner, minute 25, but now when you said Kevin Sullivan was involved with Precious, what happened, they really portrayed that storyline week to week on, on television during the summer. Yeah, it was, as, it was definitely. Well, and, 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 and then incorporating it in the Great American Bash Tour. So you brought some closure for me on that because that, that match really sticks out to me that you know, defeated Rick Steiner in a minute 25. I was like, whoa, either they're putting Jimmy Garfin way, way over here or, mm-hmm. or I don't know what's going on. But from someone looking from the outside, if you weren't there, you, you kind of see that, that storyline definitely spilled onto the weekly uh, television segment. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, and like I said, I, I enjoyed the feud, but they they uh, took it uh, on a whole new level with this Prince of Darkness death matches and the, mm-hmm. the Tower of Doom. Uh, it was very innovative for its time. I, I will say that. It was really cool. And then, uh, of course, later on in the years, uh, they they done that, and then the WWF would, would kind of rip off um, the Prince of Darkness death match when they had the match with model Rick Martell 
um, and Jack the Snake Roberts um, when uh, you know they had kind of the same match, the blindfold match, and right. so it was kind of neat. But I, I do remember, yeah, I do remember Tony. I remember another thing that happened in that. There was one time uh, Kevin Sullivan brought a, brought a clothes hanger to the ring, and Precious ended up getting it. And she actually took it and wrapped it around Kevin's throat and was chunking him with it. Yeah, that was that was during the um the um, did that happen? Was, it, yeah, it, I yeah, yeah. It, it happened at the um, Clash of the Champions. I mean, she, okay. yeah, she grabbed that yeah. coat hanger and because I remember hearing Jim Ross go, <laughs> she was going to choke the life out of Kevin Sullivan. <laughs> and I thought it was really cool how he said that, but uh, but yeah, I mean, that's what I'm saying. This this that whole angle was just so real. Um, but I also remember, you know, at the time I I didn't really get to see any of the Florida championship wrestling stuff, but I would see it in Matt, you know, I'd see stuff in magazines and I would see like Kevin Sullivan and woman and they had their faces painted and, and, and he had that real, you know, demonic gimmick and man, like I, as a kid, I was like, man, this Kevin Sullivan guy, is a, he, he's weird. I mean, he's out there, you know? Um, but I, but I love Kevin. I mean, and, and, and I got a chance to meet Kevin, um, uh, a few months back Man, what an awesome guy! You know, he's from Boston, Massachusetts, uh, but a really good guy, uh, funny, um, you know, just just all around great guy. Uh, short, <laughs> I mean, uh, he's a big guy, but like you know, not not many pro wrestlers have I met that I'm almost like the same height of, and so he and I were almost the same height, and I was like, man, because on TV he had those great big legs and the big muscle, you know, the big chest and arms and but then he was you know kind of a short and i was like wow it's pretty it, it kind of blew me away um and speaking of being blown away this next match i remember as a kid being there blew me away because it wasn't advertised it just came out they um and what what better place to do this than than the home of them greensboro coliseum um the return of the rock and roll express ricky morton and robert gibson and they took on the sheep herders butch miller and luke williams with their um, flag bearer, Rip Morgan. Now, fans, some of the some of the younger fans out there may not know who the Sheep Herders are, but you really do. Uh, they went on later on to become the um, the Bushwhackers. But um, but man, talk about a great a great tag team match. Um, it, it was awesome. And then the pop that the Rock and Roll Express guy, I I can still see it like it was yesterday. Uh, they 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 wore red tights out and. Uh, Man, as soon as the sheep herders came out waving their flags and everything, and then when that rock, when that rock and roll was king music hit, the 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 roof of the Greensboro Coliseum or or the War Memorial came off, uh, and and I remember Ricky getting on the mic and saying, you know, after after the match, he got on the mic and said, uh, "Rock and roll is back home where we belong." And I remember as a kid uh, thinking, "Okay, we got the Fantastics, and we got the Rock and Roll Express. How are we gonna have these two? Uh, baby face tag teams that are kind of similar uh, in the same in the same same area, uh, which we later on learned didn't last long because like the um, the the uh, Fantastics end up leaving, um, and then Rock and Roll left and Fantastic. So so they they bounce back and forth. But when when it comes to tag team wrestlers that are over like no other, we got to go with the Rock and Roll Express, right, guys? No doubt about it. But to me, out of every tag, I mean, you know, you can say the Road Warriors, uh, they're the most awesome tag team I've ever seen. But as far as the most over tag team I've ever seen in my lifetime, Rock and Roll Express, hands down. I mean, they were, they were like the Beatles. Um, yeah. You know, and 
attacking. When they come out, I mean, they are flocked by fans, women, you name it, girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, over. now, Chris, I know when, 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 whenever you, whenever you were running yeah. New Dimension Wrestling, I know you used the Rock mm-hmm. Express a lot. But did yeah. did, did you ever get a chance to see the Rock Express during the uh, NWA era? No, no, I, I did not, Tony. Um, I saw them when they made their run in the WWF era back in the 90s. But Rock and Roll Express, just like Jeff said, they were the hottest thing for the NWA when it came to the tag team division. They related to the fans. No matter what the demographic was, the concept related and it worked. They had the rock and roll. They had the look. You know, Ricky had the long blonde hair. Robert had the brown hair. The brunette. You know, I mean, it, it just worked at the end of the day, and the concept worked, and people related it to it. It didn't matter who they were wrestling in the ring. You know, when rock and roll hit the ring, it was going to be a war. The fans were in it, and no matter what they did, they went crazy. If it was a drop kick, it was a suplex. It was even a clothesline, the whole arena erupted no matter what. They were just that over, and it, and, and it was, um, you know, as Dusty Rhodes kind of almost created, the he did create the Rock and Roll Express, and it was uh, like, what are we going to do with these guys? They're just yeah. so over. You know, how, how can we not take them down? And it was great for the NWA and for Ricky and Robert, uh, a, a great time for them, and even anyone that went up against them. Yeah, and and what what was cool was um, I, you know, I've, I've talked to to our good friend George South a lot, and I'd I'd asked him one time, you know, uh, because you know George George South is 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 a great guy, and he he, he has got to be uh in in some amazing places in his wrestling career. Uh, you know, he, 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 he's, he got to wrestle the great Muda in one of his first, uh, you know, matches with Jim Crockett promotions, but, but George South got to wrestle Rick and Robert on their first television appearance in mid Atlantic championship wrestling. And, uh, and he said, he didn't even know what a rock express was. And he said, all, all, only, only thing they told him was dusty came to him and said, uh, and George, George asked Dusty, you know, what do you mean to do? And, and, and he said, all Dusty said was just catch him, baby, just catch him. And, and he said, he said that he, that he knew the moment that they walked out of that, out of that dressing room into the ring there in Shelby, North Carolina. He knew at that point, Rock Express times were changing and Jim Carter promotions as they knew it was about to be a whole new era and of course, it was Rock Express was big, and I remember during this time. This was like 1985. I was in fifth grade, and my dad took me to uh, to to a, 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 a match there in Greensboro, and it was the Rock Express against the Midnight Express. And I'll never forget back back in these days, uh, the wrestlers when they came to the ring, you know, they uh, didn't have the the, the nice aisleways that they have now. The wrestlers actually went through the people to get to the ring. And I remember sitting there, and Cornette and the Midnight Express, Dennis and, and Bobby are in the ring, and Cornette cuts a promo there in Greensboro. And the minute the first bass drum kick of Rock, as Rock and King hit, when that hit, I couldn't hear anything else. Couldn't hear the music. 
the screams were so high pitched, like it was like somebody was sticking a, a needle in my ear. And when Ricky and Robert came through the crowd, they disappeared for like minutes. Didn't see them. And next thing you know, Ricky's coming up. He's holding the, the world tag team belt in one hand. His shirt's been ripped off. Robert's shirt is ripped off. And I remember looking at my dad and going, Dad, when I grew up, that's what I want to do. <laughs> you know, uh, I, it blew me away of, of how over that the Rock Express was. And I know b- both of us have talked about this on previous podcasts, but I want to touch on this mm-hmm. to give the people an idea. Ricky and Robert were so over. They they done a gimmick one time and came to the to the local um, amusement park in Charlotte Carowinds, and they were there for just a little bit, and they had to shut the place down because people were losing their minds over Ricky and Robert. I totally believe what you're saying there, Tony. And, and I'll tell you what, I would hate to be any of the opponents build on the card to take on the Rock and Roll Express that night, 86, 87, 88, 89, because you knew what you were getting into. And you kind of knew what you were getting into, but then when you actually got in the ring, it was probably a totally different story. You were in hostile territory, mm-hmm. but, hey, they had the look, and <laughs> that's what it was. And, and, and they made a lot, a lot of money off of that Rock and Roll Express. And a lot of that was also off of MTV, too, in the Rock and Roll era into the mid to late 80s, too. So they kind of you know, springboarded off of some other things that were happening even inside and outside of wrestling. One of the things I like so much. Just uh, think, hey, you just think, if they would have been in the WWF at that period of time, the think about, you know, the the stuff they could have made, the merchandise they could have sold and made money off the Rock and Roll Express. Good God, man. This man would have made a fortune off of them. Yeah. Uh, I dare to say, I dare to say if Ricky and Robert had went to the WWF, I don't think Hulk Hogan or Steve Austin would have sold the most T-shirts. No, actually, if, if Ricky and Robert did go to the WDF, WWF, we're going towards late 80s, tag team division was really big for the WWF back then. Demolition was there and others, but Vince would have had to somewhat probably recreate the tag team division, but Ricky and Robert would have been the top bill if he could have got the contract. Yeah, I, I'll tell you one thing that never happened that I wish I would love to have saw just to see how big it would have would have gotten would have been Rock and Roll, Rock and Express and Midnight Express in the WWF in 1986. You talk about money. Oh, well, you're talking. And you're talking about you're drawing talking power. You're talking WrestleMania 2 there at that point. I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the sky would have been the limit on, on how big that that angle would have been. You know, had it now, I ain't, I ain't taking nothing away from Jim Crockett promotions because that was a great, great. But I'm talking WWF mainstream at the time. Oh man, you talk about some some awesome stuff that 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 could have been. Now, getting 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 on to our uh, next match on this, on this Great American Bash 1986 uh, 88. Um, Al Perez, the Latin heartthrob, with Gary Hart. 
uh, takes on one of the most underrated wrestlers in the history of pro wrestling, uh, the smoothest guy that I've ever seen in the ring, Brad Armstrong. This match went 11 minutes, 18 seconds with uh, Al Perez uh, defeating Brad Armstrong. But you talk about somebody that was was way sh- sh- should have gotten way more re- opportunities. Uh, Brad Armstrong was an amazing, amazing uh, performer. So let me tell you something interesting. I listen to R. Anderson's podcast every Tuesday, and he makes mention somebody they do it like a question answer, and and they you know have people send in questions. Mm-hmm. And they asked him, who's the who's the, the best wrestler you've ever been in the ring with? He said, Brad Armstrong. Oh, yeah. That's pretty big. I mean, that's over Rick Steamboat. Uh, Rick Flair. You know, Dustin Rhodes. I mean, you look who aren't interested wrestled. I mean, yep. you know, that's big. Yeah, and I used to love that um, that – a side Russian leg sweep that Brad Armstrong would do. And Jeff, remember I used to do that when I first started with you guys and your brother, Tony's like, dang, I, I wish I could do that. Like, 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 like a little Tony does. You do it just like Brad Armstrong. Uh, wasn't nowhere close to Brad's, but I mean, I, I love that move. And, but, but I love Brad Armstrong. I mean, he was, and, and I, I liked the way he moved in the ring. Like, you know, like he, he wasn't standing straight up like, like a lot of wrestlers would do. He was crotched down like, like he was sneaking in on you and getting on you. And, uh, man, he, he, I, I love, I love watching Brad Armstrong matches. And I remember this match in particular was, uh, was, it, it, it was a really good match back and forth. Um, just, just, just a, a, a real solid match. And his drop kick. Oh my gosh. Oh, beautiful. I like like the way he he, yeah. he would float over when he hit the drop kick, um, but uh, we we lost Brad, um, you know, a few years back. But um, <clears throat> I I did actually get to meet him um, in Lenore, North Carolina, a couple of times before uh, you know years before he passed. Uh, and such a humble guy, uh, probably two two of the most humble guys I've ever met in the wrestling business was him and of course Ricky Steamboat. But you gotta be, you gotta put Bobby. But Bobby, Bobby, to this day, Bobby don't don't know how good he was. I mean, Bobby was just uh, just an awesome guy. And speaking of Bobby, it takes us to our next match, a three on two handicap bunkhouse match. Now we're starting to get into these gimmick matches. Okay, so we got the Fantastics, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers, against the Midnight Express, uh, beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stand with Jim Cornette. In a bunkhouse match, uh, this match goes 15 minutes and 10 seconds. Uh, just a really, really good match, and they did this match perfect. Um, they, you know, they got Cornette in the ring against the Fantastics, and to keep the keep Bobby and Stan strong, uh, Jim Cornette is the one that actually gets pinned, not Bobby and or Stan. Uh, it was it, it was a really, really cool match. I, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, just all around great match. It kept you on the edge of your seat the whole time. Uh, even and 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 that and and you know, a lot of times people don't understand when they do these gimmick matches like a bunkhouse match. It's really hard to do. Uh, you know, to keep because all, all you're doing is beating each other up. You got gimmicks. You got belts, boots, whatever. Um, so it's a street fight. Uh, so uh, and I and I and this this match was actually like a blow off uh, of their feud that they had been having because in Baltimore. 
the Midnight Express had just, uh, when this match happened, the week prior, Bobby and Stan had just regained the United States Tag Team titles from um, from the Fantastic. So this was like a non-title match, but it was a bunkhouse match. But it was very entertaining, and I and I, I, I definitely enjoyed it. I mean, you got four really good wrestlers in the ring here in this match. I mean, you look at it, you got Bobby Fulton, Tommy Rogers, Bobby Eaton, Stan Lane that mesh with each other well. Cornette's kind of the wild card in the match, but, uh, you know, a great match leading up to the main event matches on, on the card. Um, I'm sure it was entertaining for those that like tag team wrestling. And, and I mean, overall, and, and from a bunkhouse standpoint, Hey, the Fantastics won, you know, they had only two on their side, three on the other. And, uh, like I said, the wild card played out in the end. And, uh, and the Midnight Express back then were still a very, very predominant tag team in the division overall in the NWA, you know, just in the mix. Yeah, and and during this time was uh was uh when I I've, I really loved the the pairing of Sweet Stan and Beautiful Bobby. Now I I like I like mm-hmm. I like the Condry Eaton, but but when they brought Stan in, they they added a whole new uh, layer to the Midnight Express gimmick. That's that's kind of when they they started giving their their finishing moves these these outlandish names like uh, the double goozle and um you know the uh, divorce court and you know all those kind of things the flapjack and man bobby and stan had they were like pulling stuff you know at, you know in the ring that like 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 tricks out of a hat man they were just like so so smooth and so good and and i and you know in just a few few months later uh whenever they would turn uh you know there in the fall uh, when they would turn babyface against the horsemen, um, man, that that right there just took Bobby and Stan to a whole new level. And if and if Tully and Arn hadn't left, I'm gonna go on a limb here, but I'm gonna say that the Midnight Express versus Tully, Tully and Arn might would have been bigger than the Rockland Express against Midnight Express because at the time Bobby and Stan were really really over. Yeah, I yeah. have to agree with you. Yeah, I mean, Stan Lane had the look. I mean, he had the look. Bobby had the skill. And then just the name, the Midnight Express, you knew when they walked the aisle, you knew it was coming to the ring, no matter who was in the ring against them. I mean, just, you know, I mean, but Stan Lane had had a great look to him and, and, and really complimented the team well, you know, you know beyond. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that it was great, and it, I I used to love the gimmick uh, of the you know both of you guys know this. I'm a, I've always been a big Bobby Eaton Mark, but I was always a big Midnight Express Mark. I loved the the music, and I loved um you know I, I loved how Cornette would introduce them. You know he'd say something like, um, uh, "Ladies and gentlemen, here they are the men that that cripple that, that cripple more more people than than polio." You know, Bobby. You know, look, beautiful Bobby and Sweet Stan. You know, he, he. You know, he'd always have have these little funny hooks. Um, and then, and then one one of the funniest things was 1987. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, 87. Uh, the Great American Bash on tour. They're in Charlotte. I was at this show. Um, and Cornette Cornette comes out and he says, uh, "Every woman in this stadium wants to molest these two men right here." <laughs> it's like has that. And uh, here it is. 
And then and then and then when Stan would get on the mic and his radio voice, because everybody knows, you know, Stan's got that deep, uh, rich radio voice, and uh, he would get on the microphone and he'd say, "And now, ladies and gentlemen, soon to appear on the lifestyles of the rich and famous, Mr. Jim Corn." And but the way he said it, man, it was just like, I mean, great. I I can't say enough about the Midnight Express and and Stan Lena, uh, always entertaining. Yeah, my my favorite one was when Cornet introduced him as uh, being in more bedrooms than Johnny Carson. Oh yeah, that yeah. <laughs> uh huh. I mean, Cornet is so. Uh, even now, I I love I love listening to Cornet talk. I mean, he, he it, the the stuff he says, it, it's like it's natural. He don't even think about it; it just comes out. But it's so funny and entertaining, uh, the way he says it. Um, and you know, and he has these 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 one liners and and stuff that is just out of this world funny uh it's great stuff so uh but moving on now to our next uh event uh, on this on this card um it's for the nwa world television championship the champion mike rotundo with kevin sullivan and rick steiner uh take on sting uh of course it ends up as a uh, dq they go 10 minutes 16 seconds and um you know really uh, you know it was a great match and i remember you know this was like one of the first time I ever saw Sting live, and uh, one of the things on this show that blew my mind was, you know, it's the War Games of this of this Great American Bash. It got two rings, and uh, on this show, on this show, Mike Rotunda goes to one ring and refuses to come over to the other ring. The referee keeps saying, "Gotta come over, gotta come." Over. Nope, nope. You tell Sting to come over here, and so Sting just looks over at the people. He beats on his chest. He hits the ropes and he dives over both rings and gives Mike Rotunda the, the most beautiful high cross body I've ever seen in my life. And I said, this Sting guy is going to be something one day. And, of course, uh, the icon that he later on be, uh, went on to become. Um, just an amazing match. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, what, what, do you, what, do you, what do you guys think about Mike Rotundo, um as the NWA World Television Champion? I thought it was great. Um, I thought uh, he was a very good worker. I thought he was better better heel than than these days. Yeah, you know? I agree. Um, I actually liked the you know the varsity club deal then. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, and I mean, you know, he uh, you know Sting was still a little green around the edges back then. Yep. Yeah, he was and, still. Uh, you know, my good my could take him. You know, and uh, I'd make a good match with him, and uh, and that's the way I look at it. And then I think eventually he ended up beating Mike Rotundo at some point for the uh, World Television title. Yeah. Now, no, now, it was Rick Steiner that did. Rick Steiner, that's right. Yeah, Steiner, Steiner actually okay, won the right. television title. Starcade. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah Starcade '88. Yeah. Later on that year. Yeah. I mean, Tony Mike Rotunda, um, you know. When you look through this whole bash, um, he was successful defending the NWA World Television title match with the whole Great American Bash. And he wrestled, if I was looking correctly, I think they made 39 stops on the tour that year. He wrestled six to seven different competitors through that time, which is tough for someone to do when you got to... Yeah a different style or caliber wrestler coming into the ring 
you know, each and every night on, on the stop. But he successfully defended it, whether Kev, Kevin Sullivan, Rick Steiner were interfering or not. That's a whole other story. But Rotunda was coming off of his WWF days as well. And, and, and where he was a baby face and here he was a heel mm-hmm. in the, in the NWA Jim Crockett promotions. And Hey, he was successful during 88 and, 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 and good for him, but a really good wrestler. He was a really solid wrestler and, and for Sting, you know, yeah. And I agree with Jeff, he was still kind of green around the edges and where are we, where are we going with Sting? And they were plugging him out of a lot of different matches during the bash run in 88 as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, now this next um, match, uh, I was pissed off about <laughs> when I was a kid because just just a few months earlier, I I can't remember the exact date. I, I want to say April, May, somewhere around there. But um, the NWA was doing a lot of television tapings, and I I knew you guys remember this: the Road Warriors against the Powers of Pain, uh, the Bench Press Challenge. That happened in Greensboro Coliseum. I was at this. Uh, I was I was there, um, and I've talked to Road Warrior Animal uh, on a couple of occasions about about you know behind the scenes stuff with this, and it was a really cool concept. Um, but we uh, from 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 that night at the TV taping, uh, the feud between the Road Warriors and the power the Powers of Pain, and you go back and look, and both both teams were the same almost the same height the same build the same size they 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 were just monster bodybuilders uh that painted their faces but they were just you know in your face uh take take no prisoners kind of kind of deal um they they do the bench press challenge uh the the powers of pain ends up you know throwing animal into the uh in, in into the barbell uh, separates his 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 eye from his head, and and they just run with this angle. And so now to fi- to finish this angle, they're they're going they're going back to the Skywalkers, the Road Warriors against the Powers of Pain on a Skywalker match. And I've talked to my good friend uh, Bar Barbarian um, about this, uh, and he said uh, they they wasn't happy about how they were being booked, and they remember when when it, he said nobody told them. That uh, they were or nobody asked them first about doing these um, Skywalker matches. Uh, Dusty uh, Crockett, nobody came to him and said, "Hey guys, uh, you know we're thinking about putting this this angle together. We're going to put you guys on the scaffold." And Barb said, "Him and Barb, him and him and um, Warlord both were like, listen, we're over three hundred pounds. We're not coming off that scaffold. That ain't happening. It ain't happening." So they end up calling Vince and uh, and getting. Um, you know, and, and getting hired to the WWF and they left the WWF the week, the great American bash has started. So they never even, even went to, uh, they, they, they never worked the great, the great American bash. So what they ended up having to do to, to, um, to salvage this angle was they put Ivan Koloff and the uh, Russian assassin together, uh, to, to kind of fizzle out this feud that the, that Paul Jones had started with, uh, with the road warriors. So here in Greensboro, we got the road warriors, animal and Hawk, uh, against Ivan Koloff and the Russian assassin. Number one, which was actually the, um, the fallen angel, um, uh, from the UWF. Um, and, uh, so they're on the, they're on the scaffold match. Of course, this match lasts five minutes, 34 seconds. Um, and you know, crazy guys. It took them longer to take this scaffolding down than the match than the match went on. 
for mm-hmm. Ivan Koloff at five minutes, 34 seconds too long. Um, but, I mean, the World War was just so over at that time. It was just like they could just barrel through anyone. It's, for me, a kid at 17 years old at that time, the Road Warriors could beat anyone on a scaffold as far as I was concerned. So mm-hmm. me too. they could almost put anyone up there, and they would just go right through them. Yeah, um, I was a huge fan of scaffold match when they did it the first time, which was with the Midnight Express and the Road Warriors. But then they did it again with the Rock and Roll Express and the Midnight Express, and then it was like... I just, I really didn't like the scaffold matches. I mean, to me, they were just, I mean, you can't when you're, you know, and I, Cornette talked about it, how, you know, Bobby and Stan used to say, and Dennis Bell said the same thing, you know, what can we do up there but punch and kick? You know, I mean, you can't really do anything on a scaffold. I mean, that's all you can do. Yeah, um, I, I'm like you guys. I, I feel the same way. Scaffold matches, uh, the the first one, like like I feel like if if they did one, okay, they did the one with the Road Warriors and Midnight Express. They uh, it's kind of like one and done. They uh, should have done that one and been done. Um, but I'm like you, they 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 went on with it, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why this one was was so short. Because by this time, you know, over the years, Animal and Hawk had done so many of them. They were just like, you know what. I'm tired of doing this, you know, uh, and that, and that's probably what, you know, that's probably their, their thought process. So, uh, now getting to our main event, uh, we've, we've been waiting to get to this all night. Uh, it's the, uh, the infamous war games, uh, dusty Rhodes, Lex Luger, Nikita Koloff, precious Paul Ellering and Dr. Death, Steve Williams. What a tremendous, a uh, group of guys there uh, as they take on the classic four horsemen consisting of Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, J.J. Dillon, Ric Flair, and the newly the, the newest member of the horsemen, the United States heavyweight champion, Barry Windham. Uh, this match goes 21 minutes, 7 seconds, and just like in true um, War Games fashion, Arn Anderson starts out with the American Dream Dusty Rhodes and um and Chris, war games. What 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 more can you say about that? Tony, this was a loaded main event from top to bottom. I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, I went through the whole nineteen eighty eight thirty nine stops. Dusty Rhodes was only in four of the 10-man War Games tag team stops along the way. You saw one of the four stops. His other three stops were in Tampa, Florida, Charlotte, and Atlanta. So from top to bottom, I got to say the horsemen were probably at their peak at this time with Barry Windham. Oh, yeah, for sure. Without a doubt. Mm -hmm. And and even with J.J. in there, okay, I get it. With Paul Ethering, it's kind of a – you know, a throwaway, but at that time, the pop coming out of the arena had to be immense when they, when they took, when the horsemen were already in the ring. It just, I would have loved to have been there because with Dusty was leading the troops down the aisle, you knew it was on. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Um, you know, I, I can still, um, 
you know, see it like it was yesterday when they come out of that tunnel playing uh, Rick, Rick, Rick Flair's theme music and the horsemen coming out and, and Barry's dressed in all black leather. And I'm like, man, this, this, this right here is going to be something else. And then whenever uh, Luger and Dusty and Nikita and Dr. Death came out, um, it was like, okay, you know, you know, the, the, this is different. We're, we're, you know, we're, we're seeing Luger and, and Steve Williams when we're used to seeing the Road Warriors out there. And, of course, at this right. time, uh, Nikita Koloff had just came back because, you know, he, he was out for a while with his wife who, who, who was sick. Um, but this time we got Nikita back. Now he has hair. Uh, which was a whole new a whole new look, um, but uh, but this war games was just like any other war games. It was you know a hard fought, bloody, battered, uh, and at the end, JJ uh, Dillon submits, and we got uh, Dusty Luger, Nikita, Paul Ellering, and Steve Williams going over, and the the fans in the Greensboro Coliseum, the seventy five hundred, uh, leave happy, and a fourteen year old boy. Uh, is what is still like I remember guys <laughs> I, I was so into wrestling uh my, my my dad took me two of my friends and and one of my and, and my cousin uh to this great American bass show and after the show's over my dad's like all right let's go I'm like no I don't want to leave and he's like what do you mean you don't want to leave I want to watch him tear the ring down and my dad's like we're not gonna do that I'm like yeah we are that's what I want to do dad I just want to watch him tear the ring down because I just I, you know I couldn't get enough of wrestling i wanted to see i want to see everything i want to see how they take the cage down and and of course at this time is is when they they first started doing the the war games cage where it was attached to uh, to like a um uh, cables so instead of having to put the cage up they just hit a button the cage drops they just attach it to the ring and they're done so you know it took them like three or four minutes to put the put the cage up um and so, uh, you know, dad stayed there for a little bit, but of course, you know, they, uh, started making people leave. So we had to leave, but I did get, I did get to be there long enough to watch them take the, um, take the cage up, take the, take the uh, ropes off the ring. And they started undoing the canvas. And at that time, the, uh, security guards, you know, told us that we had to leave. So, um, but all in all, uh, the bash, uh, July 16th, 1988, it was, it was a great, you know, it was a fun time. It was a fun show. Uh, it was definitely, a lot different than the Great American Bashes in the past, um, but all in all, I mean, it, it's definitely a a fun show. What what, what do you guys say? Uh, it definitely sounds like it was. Um, you know, wish wish I would have been able to uh, have been to one of them. And I know, um, I know the early part of 1988. Uh, I've seen Cornet talk about it. Uh, you know, the NWA was starting to lose money, um, and they weren't drawing. The houses were, were down. Um, but uh, he said during the summer they definitely picked back up as far as attendance and uh, gate money made and all that. So, uh, um, like, Dusty threw it all together there for the summer. Um, so it felt like a, a really great show. Yeah, it, it was, yeah. I mean, I got to go off of what Jeff said. I mean, I mean, Tony, you you saw a, a, a special show. You saw the Great American Bash on tour, and you know, not many people, when you talk about the whole United States, can get an opportunity back in 1988 or 85, whatever the year is, to see that. And and you saw it, and it, it was special. It was intimate, and 
you know, to see those guys, I mean, it, it, the, the wrestlers and the performers and the storylines that were coming off of WTBS and the NWA and Jim Crockett Promotions, it, it's priceless. You just can't put a price tag on it, and it will never, ever be recreated again because the pops that those guys got back in the day during the Great American Bash and World Games never will be created in professional wrestling ever again. They were wrestling every night, every night, and giving it their all. And compared to what's happening today, you can't even you can't even compare it. No, and 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 you know, Chris if, and and Jeff, if you go back and look at all the years that Jim Crockett Promotions done the Great American Bash, I, my opinion, I feel like the the best year for the bashes for the Bash Tour was nineteen eighty six. Um, because that year they, they put a lot of emphasis on Ric Flair. Uh, you know, that's the year that, 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 that they gave Flair the big gold belt. Uh, so I think their idea to showcase that belt was they said, okay, Ric Flair, you're the world champion. You're going to defend the belt at every single great American bash. Uh, and he did. And, and the cool thing was the, 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 the angle they ran it all the way through was Flair held the belt on all the bashes except they got down to the last two bashes and he lost it at the next to the last one to dusty. Um, but, uh, but, but I always, always, I always love the great American bashes and, and, and one of the coolest hooks that they used was that year in 1986. I, I, I still have the shirt here, here at home, but they had a shirt and it says the great American has an Eagle. It has a, a big Eagle on the front of the shirt and it has a and the Eagles got an American flag, and it says, "The Great American Bash, Living in the Promised Land," and uh, and they had Willie Nelson, you know, they they come on TV and cut a little promo with Dusty and and kind of talk about that and got the bash started and everything. And uh, but man, in the '80s, what a great time to to be a wrestling fan, to be a wrestler, uh, to be able to go out and attend uh, these Great American Bashes and. Uh, it was it was it was just a it was a great time, you know, and I I, I'm enjoy, I enjoyed it. I'm glad I got to uh, witness it firsthand, and be there, and and one of the coolest things about the network uh, is that a lot of times they will drop some of these classic shows that never was on TV, but they taped it. Um, and and if, and if any fans want to go back and watch this show that we talked about, um, uh, and and if you have the network. You can you go on there and just just um, um, search Great American Bash. Uh, it comes up, and uh, they've actually added. Uh, last I checked, they've added three of these Great American Bashes. Um, they've got um, the they, they've got one um, uh, from Charlotte Memorial Stadium. They got one from Greensboro, and they've got this one. I think all I think the first two were from Great American Bash '86. Uh, and then they just added this one not not too long ago. So, uh, really cool. Go check it out. Uh, you know, it'll, it'll bring back memories if you were there, and if you wasn't there, it'll make you wish you were there. I mean, it was just just a great time. And uh, uh, man, the bashes you can't you can't beat that. So, uh, uh, well, guys, you, you guys have any parting uh, parting words you want to say before we uh, take this uh, great Mar- or take this podcast to uh, to the promised land? No, it's been a lot of fun as usual, buddy. Yeah, I mean, Tony, a lot of fun. Great time for professional wrestling on all different levels in the late 80s. 
going into the early 90s, a lot of transition going on, a lot of guys moving back and forth, but great time for wrestling, great time to be a fan, and it's always great to go back and reminisce as well. So uh, thank you for doing this, and it's totally been a pleasure, and you gave me some flashbacks tonight. Yeah, awesome. Well, guys, thank you for joining us, and fans, thank you for joining us uh, for our podcast. Go on our um, Facebook page. Uh, if if there's a show that you want us to 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 talk about, we can. Uh, I know uh, as soon as this COVID nineteen thing is over, I'm, we're gonna start having more guests on the show. Um, I've got a female wrestler that is up and coming that is going to be uh, tremendous. Uh, one day, uh, I've I've already talked to her. She's you know she's 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 ready to come be on the show. I got a few more people. Um, so in the next few weeks, you know we're we're, we're gonna have more guests. Uh, and like I said, and uh, I'm in talks of a uh, really famous, I'm um, not going to let it out of the bag yet, but a, a famous rock star that Chris, I know, Chris, I know you love this band. Um, so uh, so I know I know when, when, when I get this guy on the show, you're, you're, you're going to be the first one to be on this show for this. But um, if, okay. if if everything goes well and I can get everything, get everything ironed out with the, you know, with the attorneys and all that kind of thing, um, I'm going to, I'm going to, we're going to have somebody on our show that's going to really blow the people away. I know our podcast is kind of about pro wrestling, but, but my podcast is about Tony Binge and, and the things Tony Binge likes and, and my friends, Chris and Jeff likes, you know, we, we love wrestling and we love rock music. And, uh, so I like to, to, to you know, do my podcast on, on all that kind of stuff. So, um, but anyway, guys, th- thank you again for joining me on the show. Uh, And thank you, listeners, and we will uh, see you guys next week on the Binge Buster Show. Thank you for listening to the Binge Buster Show. Make sure you like us on Facebook and download us on your favorite podcast platform.